0: Once upon a time, there were three friends, Guan, Karen, Hi. and me, Beck. We loved to sit in cafes, bouncing ideas off each other, collaborating on creative things and sharing the stuff we were into. We called ourselves, completely unpretentiously, the hive mind. But as so often happens, the demands of life started to encroach and it got harder and harder to meet up in person. What's a hive mind to do, but find new ways to pick each other's brains. Welcome to the Hive Minded Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 9 of the Hive Minded Podcast. Today we are shaking things up again as we are want to do. Guan's having the week off, and we are here with Kathleen Jennings. Hello. And Karen Billhartz. Hello. And me, Rebecca G. And we're going to be talking about the things that we are into at the moment. Kicking us off is Kathleen. What are you into at the moment, Kathleen?
1: What am I into at the moment? Well, I have been into a lot of things. As I mentioned earlier, I've had a really busy couple of weeks and went to the theatre or a concert or the chamber orchestra or something every night for about nine days. So, But what I thought I would talk about is a book called Words in Deep Blue by Kath Crowley. I don't know if you've come across that one.
2: No.
1: So on 12th night, which we calculate by different calendars Depending on which day suits me Either the 5th or the 6th of January <laughs> I have a 12th night party at my house And everyone brings along something to read out loud Five minutes worth or a story to tell
0: yeah. and, and for those who aren't familiar with the tradition of 12th night
1: Can you explain what that is? So the 12 days of Christmas actually begin on Christmas Day, the 25th and then they continue until the Feast of Epiphany, which is when the wise men show up, I think. <laughs> yes, <laughs> the wise men show up. And that marks the traditional 12 days of Christmas. So in medieval Renaissance, Elizabethan England, you'd have that time of festivities that you'd go through. And at the end, you'd have, as usual, a great big party on the end, usually with revelry and food and Shakespeare <laughs> writing plays, especially for you, um, hence the play Twelfth Night. So... I like to celebrate it in a fairly low-key way just by leaving the guest list until the day before or sometimes the afternoon of, so it's self-limiting. <laughs> and then call everyone up and go, hey, come over, bring any leftover Christmas food you have and favourite book or something that you've been wanting to read. So this year's selection was really interesting. We got into food in fantasy novels and murder mm. mystery, food and murder mysteries and into Australian history including Gert, someone brought along. Tanae discussed before. And one of my friends, Alex Adsett, who's a literary agent up here, brought along Words in Deep Blue by Kath Crowley which is apparently being hand sold with great avidness by all of the bookstores around Australia because it's actually <laughs> I know Guam was talking about reading Eighty Four Charing Crossroad and those sorts of books mm. about books and books about people mm. who love books. So this is an Australian contemporary Australian YA about people who love books and work in bookstores and loss and love and renegotiating friendships a year or two after finishing high school, but mostly about this lovely book shop called i forget what the name of the bookstore is now howling books which <laughs> so has among other things a letter it's fiction people in it leave a lot of letters to each other inside books in the letter library which is mm-hmm. an area of the secondhand bookstore where you can't buy the books but you can write in them you can leave notes you can have long-term correspondence back and forth so mostly it's in first person point of view of the two main characters, but it's interleaved with these moments in the letter library. So it's definitely a Australian an Australian young adult novel in feel, which may or may not bother people to varying degrees, <laughs> but it's also got that real heart of a book of a story about bookstores and books. Mm. And it's really enchanting reading it because it's so recent. It's referring to a lot of books that I haven't got around to reading like Cloud Atlas to a lot of classics but also name checking people like Kelly Link and so forth and all those moments when you read a book about books where you think yes yes you know what you're talking about (laughs) this is the correct book to recommend so I'm probably talking through that book at the microphone now. That was one I wanted to mention because it was really enchanting and just one of those books that pulls in what you love which I think can be tricky without feeling like it's a book that is solely name-checking without giving you any feeling of what the books that they're talking about are about. I think it runs at risk risk occasionally, but I also think The Bridge to Terabithia does that. No, it's a really sweet novel, and I cried a lot at the end, and oddly, because I know you were talking about 84 Charing Crossroad in the movie with Anne Bancroft, Mm. I found that didn't really work for me as a movie because it's an epistolary novel about books and you just kind of wanted to be, I wanted to be there in the words and not seeing the people. Mm. Oddly enough, this is a novel about books with a lot of epistolary segments. And halfway through, I'm like, I want this to be made. Someone has to make this as a movie. I would <laughs> so enjoy this. It would be one of those sweet Australian young adult movies in that kind of hating Alice and Ashley vein, but for older
0: yeah.
1: people. Or looking for Ella
0: Brandy.
1: Or looking for Ella Brandy, that kind of feeling. I'm um, yeah. very much in that world, but with lots of books. So that was also nice to have a somewhat bookish main character who doesn't read fiction, prefers not to read fiction, uh, and Mm -hmm. is very sporty. The other one does read fiction and isn't particularly sporty, but it's such an unexpected difference to see that. And in Pamela Dean's Tamlin, she plays around with that a little bit too, whereas most of the main characters are really into classics and ancient history and novels and mythology and Shakespeare. There's that one hapless roommate who in any other circumstances would be the popular girl, would be the girl with you know <laughs> the friends and the fans and the cheerleading and everything else that happens in America, except all her friends and all her roommates are nerds. <laughs> and they <laughs> just wear her down and they nearly break her. And Tamlin was a bit of a wake-up call to me not to actually mercilessly tease people who aren't into books because it is just as cruel as the other way around. So that was a nice difference in this case and that I'm currently I've just started watching Riverdale I've only seen the first two episodes but it had that interesting balance again of not making either just it's just about the sporty kids or the sporty kids are cruel and the bookish kids aren't there's a really interesting mixture of active and creative people in it so you've got the the quiet bookish character who actually is very sporty and wants to be a cheerleader Mm. you've got Archie who's very good at football but has just discovered that he's very good at songwriting as well and is trying to deal with how to balance fitting all that into his life in terms of time management which was quite interesting also the second episode for some reason reminded me of The Village by Shy Malone
0: (laughs) I've heard mixed things about about Riverside Riverside that's a suburb in Tasmania Riverdale (laughs) So would you recommend it?
1: Yes. (laughs) I haven't really read Archie since growing up out West. Yeah. Reading it in summer at my piano teacher's house. And it's very different from that, obviously. Yeah. And I'm aware that in the last few years or for a while, the comics have been playing around with different takes on it, different genres, different feelings, doing interesting things with the characters. So I wasn't surprised by this, but it's got this, a lot of people have compared it to Twin Peaks, which I've never Mm. watched But it's got that lovely, super saturated murder, but not really gothic. Like it's just deep colours and bubblegum pink and then dark nights and then hot yellow (laughs) colours. And they're playing around with the friendships in quite interesting ways. So you've got those strong connections so that Betty and Veronica are set up from the beginning as having the potential for a really strong friendship and they're trying very hard not to let circumstances tear that down and the same with discussing other existing friendships and backgrounds. It's an outright murder mystery with lots of unexpected literary and art references. I think there's one scene when they're in Pop's chocolate shop with a diner talking and it's late at night and you've got that you know, it's dark outside and there's a hot pink mid-century stuff inside and Pop says to them, so it's just the Nighthawks here tonight, which is a reference to that painting Nighthawks of the two people at the counter Mm. of a diner late at night. There's also a lot of other literary references, which
0: I don't know. So I'm getting the sense like from that and from the book that you were talking about that you are a fan of little Easter eggs and things that make you go, oh, I know what they're talking about. I am.
1: It can definitely be overdone. It can really be overdone and feel just like, checklist or fan service or whatever but I still remember how fun it was watching Gilmore Girls with that Mm. rapid fire pop culture conversations they always used to have and going no wait I've read that book that was a Lord of the Rings joke what's happening
0: and that they don't explain what it is they just Mm. keep going because it makes sense to them so yeah and it's kind of that
1: rapid fire pop culture but existing mythology that they keep pulling into their conversations which I yeah, it's just really mm. enchanting so yes mm. i riverdale is both awful and awesome <laughs>
0: and i get very very consciously so so just back to the book that you were talking about before words in deep blue words in deep blue by kath crowley yep yeah. so you were saying that it was being very eagerly sold by booksellers that you know is that right i've talked to people in brisbane
1: who have told me that it is popular with a number of bookstores in town, whose staff like to press it into people's hands because it is also about the survival of bookstores and secondhand bookstores. Yeah, so
0: so you know if you're going to get this book, Words in Deep Blue, go into an actual bookshop yes, and buy it, and the people in the book bookshop store. will probably thank you. They will always
1: thank. Well, I hope they'll thank you. So, so well, they, they will, unless they're really grumpy ones, and then you can just tell people that you met the Black Books Bookstore. So it's always worth. <laughs> yes. <watching. laughs>
0: It's very sad that at the moment this weekend was the last trading day for what I gather was an institution in Launceston and I hadn't ever made it along to, but it was this big bookshop called Birchall's, which had books as well as just about anything else that you could want. So it was one of those sort of big, you know, had toys, had games, had all sorts of things. When I said, is it like Dimmicks in Sydney in the city to a friend? He was like, oh, kind of, but it's hard to describe. It's more than that. And that shut down. And Hmm. I don't know that there are actually – I haven't stumbled across any other bookshops here, so it's quite sort of sad in a way. So, yes, definitely go and support local bookshops if you can –
1: Two, two, one way to do that or two ways to do that. Well, one is to cultivate a relationship with whoever runs their Twitter <laughs> so that when you're on Twitter talking about books, copy them in and I have got to the point with one bookstore where I, you know i am just on Twitter and go, "Can you order this book for me by the way because we've been having a big Twitter conversation about books <laughs> and and now it's at the point where one uh, Pulp fiction books, the owner occasionally just orders books and tells me he's ordered them in my name <laughs> and come in. And, He's got very good taste and he knows mine. And the other was at the Australian Fairy Tale Society local Brisbane branch. We had our meeting at Avid Reader Bookstore in Brisbane the other week and I was giving a presentation on adapting fairy tales. So I was not paying attention to anything else that was happening around me. I was focused <laughs> on the task at hand. And then when I sat down and looked sideways in the interval or in the interim while I had been sitting there talking while we were all discussing the history of Sleeping Beauty. The staff had come out and put out a table and got all the fairy <laughs> tale books in the shop and made a beautiful wow. display right next to us. So I bought that is good work. Yes, I bought a gorgeous edition of Hans Christian Andersen. It's like long and little. And it's got that sort of Bible sort of paper and a ribbon bookmark mm. and gold
0: edges. You can just carry it with you and refer to it. It's kind of the opposite of a Bernard Black bookshop, isn't it? <laughs> Very much so.
2: I don't actually get into bookstores anymore. It's really sad. I miss them.
0: Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Yeah,
2: it's way too hard because, you know, they're not pram friendly. And, of course, kids Mm. you know, just want to pull books off the shelf and Mm. look at them and whatnot. And my favourite one in Sydney, Kinakunya, is almost impossible to get to. I mean, you know, you have to plan Mm. a proper trip to get in there. And even getting a pram up to that level. Like, I've worked it out now, but it's seriously... Accessibility-wise, it's like, um, okay, so I can catch a lift up to a certain level, but then I can't actually get from that lift. You can't get any around... further. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's, there's only like yeah. one lift that will actually get you up there. <laughs> and Yeah. Anyway.
0: Frustrating. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mentioned this in the last episode about going into Glee Books and excitedly looking for Margaret Atwood books every time I went in there. But there's definitely something about the serendipity of a bookshop that you – don't get and that's something i find with audible and ordering things for my kindle and things like that is that you have to know specifically what you're looking for mm. whereas when you go into a bookshop and you like looking at the latest releases or the staff picks tables and things like that was always so exciting because you just be like oh, oh, oh and that kind of feeds into what I'm going to talk about with Annie DeFranco. Nice segue, hey, (laughs) Vic. Yeah, I'm just going to keep going. So when I used to go to Glebe Books, which is in Glebe in Sydney, in the inner west where I lived when I was at uni. So I'd spend a lot of time in bookshops buying books that I couldn't afford. But, you know, that's what you do when you're at uni. Um, But it was pre-internet. So you were reliant on the bookstore staff to highlight things that had come out or that were exciting, but you also would find things on the shelves that you didn't know existed or were coming out. And that was really exciting. And similar to Annie DeFranco, who's one of my favourite music artists, she's someone who I connected with when I was at uni, again, as many young women do, because she's that passionate, political, fiery folk singer who taps into all sorts of emotional truths and realities for women, but also, yeah, the world around us. She's very passionate about the area that she lived in, Buffalo, New York. She is passionate about the political process and she campaigns and talks about that sort of stuff all the time. But when I was first getting into her, yeah, there was no internet. And living in Australia, and you guys probably remember this feeling too of being a kid and seeing in the back of say puffin books, join the puffin Mm. book club thing and going, oh, that's just for people in the UK and I live too far away. I can't join any book clubs, you know, like it sort of felt like you were so isolated. You couldn't join in that sort of pop culture stuff that happened Mm. in the US or the UK. And with someone like Anita Franco, obviously, or any musician in the States, they would, you know, gig around at venues of varying sizes, tiny little, coffee shops or or bigger venues and all that sort of thing and they'd get around so you could you could conceivably go and see them quite a lot but in Australia they'd come like it's would be so expensive to come out here even if you didn't have an elaborate stadium show and it was just you and your guitar and a microphone like mm. that it's still expensive to get out here
2: yeah she didn't actually so, come out here until we went to see her that year when was that It was like 2009 or something
0: no, she'd been here before that. Oh, okay. Right. On. Yeah, cuz I I had seen her before that, but she didn't she wasn't frequent. Hmm. It was Amy Mann who had never come out before. Oh, yes, of course. Did did yes. yeah. Was she out? I missed her. <laughs> she, <laughs> she was. Probably I knew who she was. who she was. <laughs> <laughs> so, the thing that inspired me about Annie DeFranco was partly her DIY kind of aesthetic. It was just like I'm going to start my own record label. Mm. She called it Righteous Babe Records. I'm a little folk singer. I'm going to make the music that I want to make on my own terms. I'm going to say what I want to say. It's going to be raw and gritty and sometimes offensive and I don't care. And, you know, sometimes it'll be ballads. Sometimes it'll be spoken word, you know, like it was just sort of a bit of everything. I don't know. I just admired that so much. And also at the time, having been, you know, studying theatre and very much in that kind of do-it-yourself, let's-put-on-a-show kind of thing, it, it just sort of fed into that. Yeah, I guess also being at the uni age where you sort of awakened to different worldviews and different things and adult themes, warning adult themes. Mm-hmm. She was introduced to me by a couple of friends who at the time both fought over which one of them actually introduced her to me, but I'll always associate her with my friend Georgia who was just, and she still is a very passionate, emotional, fiery kind of person. And so, yeah, those two personalities of Annie DeFranco and Georgia will always be linked. The thing that's been interesting in Annie's um, evolution, I guess, and one of her albums is actually called Evolve, where she explores this sort of thing, is how she's gone from the angry young woman, which I guess is not really what she was, but the label that was often given to her in 1990 with her first album, um, where she's sort of talking about relationships and love and abortions and complications with life and all that sort of stuff. And, And being someone who doesn't easily fit into a mold. And as she's grown up, or matured I suppose over the years and she's explored her sexuality and she's gotten married and she's had a kid and you know all these different sort of things how her music has changed as a um, result of that so she's gone from being just her and a guitar and she just makes some incredible music with just her and a guitar to much bigger sounds to different sort of sounds. She even did a collaboration with Prince on one of her albums, which was just oh, it's such a heartbreaking song. It's beautiful. Yeah, there's it's such a wide body of work. If you go to her website, which I'll link to in the show notes, you can just check out all the stuff there. And there is a great album, which the reason why I, I decided to start talking about her was a few weeks ago I was in Malaysia at my dad's place and I couldn't decide this is way too much detail, but I'll tell you anyway, I couldn't decide which music to load onto my phone and because I've got a ridiculously small memory on my phone, I couldn't take everything. And so I thought, I'll oh, subscribe to Apple Music for a while and that'll be good. And then was like, oh, there's all this I DeFranco Franco music there. And I hadn't been keeping up with it because kind of like I was saying before about how my connection with her predated the internet, I kind of forgot that... Mm. I could find her on the internet, you know what I mean? Like, because she'd been this sort of magical folk singing nymph that was out there in the world just making stuff happen and I'd stumble across it eventually. And then I went to her website and was like, oh, man, there's all this stuff that I haven't, oh. Mm. She did, like, a sort of best of, I guess, called Canon. And that's, if you don't know where to start with Annie DeFranco, that is a brilliant place. Like, And I just sat there and listened to it from beginning to end without doing anything else, which is really rare these days Mm -hmm. because I tend to... You know, you're always multitasking and looking at your phone or doing this or that. But I just sort of lay there in this strange place in Malaysia, you know, feeling a bit discombobulated and just listened to all this music from my youth. And it was just it was just beautiful. Um, And my other favorite album of hers is I mean, they're all they've all got gems on them. But Revelling Reckoning is one of my favorites Mm. because that came out. It was a double album and she decided to make one disc um, with what a certain mood and the other disc with another mood and, and it's just oh that's another epic that I can listen to from beginning to end without doing anything else I could yeah so I know Karen has seen an, and is a fan of Annie DeFranco's because we've been to her concert together Kathleen do you know her music at all?
1: I know her name but not her music at least not to conjure up in my mind I've missed Pretty much most popular culture before I went, predated 1970, I was fine on, Um, (laughs) until I went to boarding school and uni, and then I always, being pre-internet, relied on friends to introduce me to things, so I've got one friend up here, Deb, who introduced me to um, the Decemberists and Belle and Sebastian, and all those sorts of people, Mm. and now occasionally friends in the States, small beer press people, (laughs) they'll send me out care packages occasionally with cds in it from <laughs> local bands which are great but um, yeah none of them have introduced me to annie defranco
0: well i mean she wasn't the sort of she was i guess not she was, she was never mainstream and i guess uh, in certain corners people would just be like how do you not know annie defranco but she's i think there'd be the majority of people would not really know who she was even though she's know, so prolific yeah. and you know of her i know of her yeah. in
1: the way that if people say in a book. She was the sort of girl who listened to Annie DeFranco. I know what they mean. Right. And the same way you yeah. go, sort of yeah. guy who read and and Rand. <laughs> you sort of know yep. what they're yep. trying to conjure.
0: <laughs> they're summing that up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, which suggests I would have loved her. <laughs> so, yeah, I think you probably would have. She does a lot of wordplay. She's into words. Like she's not. Her music is inter- interesting, and the lyrics are interesting too. And the stories behind the songs are interesting. But, yeah, going to one of her gigs at the Metro, and it was the best – one of the best gigs I've ever been to, actually, because I was right up against the stage. She was on her own and so tiny. Like, she's really small and wears massive stacked shoes and stomps around and, like, she's tiny but her personality is huge. But I remember just thinking I could reach out and touch her (laughs) and my life would be complete. (laughs) And it was – it was just what, it, like, I, I beyond, you know, the boy bands that I loved when I was 12 and 13, like, I was never that hugely emotionally engaged with a performer. But being that close to her, I was just, like, totally in love. And the whole room was totally in love. But my friend Brett and I were sitting in the, the laneway outside the metro waiting to go in. And he was like, I feel so out of place because he was just like the only guy there. And I said, I feel pretty out of place too because I was wearing normal shoes. And the entire (laughs) lane was full of girls with ripped leggings and and skirts and chunky boots or Doc Martens and shaved heads and many piercings and tats. And I was just like, I feel so normal and like (laughs) vanilla compared to all of these awesome looking people. (laughs) But so yes, there's definitely like a subculture. If you are ever interested, I'd go, I'd check out Canon, check out Revelling, Reckoning, and some of her more accessible stuff would probably be Little Plastic Castles or Up, 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 Up. I think there are five ups, (laughs) which are very easy to listen to and not so much angry stuff like a lot of the early stuff. You'll have a nice song and then there'll be something really aggressive and you're like, whoa, okay. I have to adjust the volume. That's me fangirling. I I should call my segment... Fangirling with Beck that <laughs> feels like what I do. For 15 minutes, I just ramble.
2: I quite like Red Letter Year um, of her more recent yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, where she just seems a lot yeah. more settled and happy. I think <laughs> yes, she'd become a mum yes. at that stage. Yeah, she had that amazing song. Uh, I think because one of her relatives, I think, was involved in. He was a scientist, and some of his work contributed to the was it atomic bomb or something? Was that right?
0: Mm. It's got a lovely song about her becoming a mum And her wishes for her daughter And the sort of joy of that Yeah, I loved that she had decided to try and be more positive You know, that was her like Hey, I need to start writing about these good things in my life And yeah, that was mm. kind of cool so I, You just
1: reminded me that I actually ordered some CDs a while back And I have to pull them off and have a CD listening A couple of evenings <laughs> Jason Webley and Green Day and Claire Cooney, who's a writer, gorgeous, gorgeous writer, but also sings beautiful folkish songs suggested by mythology and really Hmm. quite lovely.
0: Nice. Okay, now moving on to Karen.
1: I'm going to talk about Modern Romance
2: by Aziz Ansari, which was the next audiobook. Um, So after I finished Shonda Rhymes' Year of Yes, I don't think we had reached the next month yet, so we couldn't download a new one so I was looking through stuff that Ben had previously downloaded because we share an Audible account and he's been using Audible mm. longer than I have so he said he actually hadn't read Modern Romance yet um, mm. but I thought, oh, it says he's Zanzari, sounds interesting, I'll give it a go I'd seen his Netflix show Master of None, have you guys seen that?
0: Yeah, loved it yeah, yeah. I've heard of um,
2: it but... yeah. It's sort of a bit like a sitcom about modern life but then it's actually, mm. about, it's quite profound, you know, like they've got episodes about, you know, what it's like to be single in your 30s when you're 30, everyone around you is having kids, um, the immigrant experience versus being a child of immigrants, long-term relationships and what happens when the initial passion and excitement fades and so on and so forth. So I think, I'm not sure if they're, if they're doing another season. I hope they do because it'd be really...
0: I think they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. It'd be nice to see his character... And what he does with it next. Because there was a kind of arc throughout that series where he keeps seeing this girl and then they eventually started going out and you sort of find out what happens to that relationship. You know, it's not like watching Seinfeld where it's very much that whole situation comedy, everything is really funny. It's Mm. sort of more almost a commentary on modern life, really. Um, So anyway, so Modern Romance... It's kind of an extension of some of the themes of Master of None, specifically to do with love and relationships in the digital age. I know Beck's read it. Kathleen, you have have you heard of mm. it at all? I have not read it, no. Okay. Um. So it's kind of nonfiction. It came about when Ansari, this was a number of years ago, He hooked up with a casual acquaintance. They spent a very fun evening together. Then he texted her so they could catch up again and did not receive a response. And then he was kind Mm. of driving himself crazy going, oh, did she get my text message? Did she not? Does she want to hang out? Oh, I thought we had, you know, a great connection going, blah, 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 blah. And... He started, like, asking people, oh, is there a book about this sort of stuff, about dating in the digital age and and social etiquette and stuff? And, of course, such a thing did not exist, so he decided to write one. And he enlisted Mm. the help of Eric Kleinenberg? I can't remember who... Eric is, I think he's like a sociologist, a researcher or something. And they did like these focus groups and case studies and interviewed stacks and stacks of people. And he even made some of the research part of his comedy act when he did do stand-up routines. Like he'd get people from the audience to come out on stage and ask them to show him their texts. And then he'd do a little bit of back and forth about that. Oh, that's right. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. I think
0: I
1: saw some of that.
2: Oh, okay. Wow. That'd be really interesting to see. I'll have to look up youtube
0: oh yeah he's it's on netflix on oh,
2: netflix yeah oh which one yeah is yeah.
0: so if you look up his i can't remember which one but i was watching his one of his stand-ups and then oh this must be what he was talking about from the book okay, yeah
2: i'm gonna have to look into that that'd be yeah mm. and he'd also get people um to show them show him their dating profile as well and so that was really interesting yeah so it's just this fascinating portrait of dating in a postmodern age and i really liked that He goes into some of the history as well and you just see how much has changed. There's a bunch of things that struck me about Mm. the book. So as I was saying, the comparison between then and now. um, So he he went and he talked to a bunch of people in a nursing home in in New York and he he found it interesting that most people, when they got married, they married someone who was local, like, you know, who lived down the hall Mm. or across the road or, you know, down the block or something like that. Um, And these days it's so different because people tend to marry later, um, they meet people through college, uh, they meet people through online dating, so the net is cast so much further. And also the pool of potential mates is so much larger because of things like the internet. And I found it fascinating that a lot of the older generation, like even though they had quite successful marriages and they, they you know were married for quite a long time and they would say, yes, I do really love my spouse, they were still kind of a little bit envious of the younger generation and just that choice. And, and they said, oh, if I had to do it again, I wouldn't have necessarily chosen this person to be my partner. So I thought that was really interesting. Um, so that is my mean, second observation about choice. He had this whole chapter on choice, which was so fascinating. He interviews Barry Schwartz, who's done a lot of research into um, choice and decision making. So that whole thing of if you've got too much choice, at least indecision. And also mm. when the online dating companies do their algorithms, like at first they were showing people what they wanted, you know, like a guy would say, Oh, I want, you know, a brunette who's like five foot four and into basketball, you know, I don't know, something like that, maybe not basketball. Um, and so they would apply <laughs> these filters <laughs> Oh, I don't know, likes watching basketball. So they apply these filters <laughs> and then be mystified because people weren't actually getting together and it's because often people mm-hmm. don't know what they want until they see it. Mm. Yeah. Which is it's so true in a way. So the, in the chapter on online dating, which I've never done, but I've got friends who have all that stuff was just so fascinating. Cause he, he goes into, you know, stats about what kind of profile pictures work and what kind of information that you have on your dating profile works. And just the, um, crazy amount of messages that you can receive, like, especially if you're female, because if you're female you get way more attention, Um, and the awfulness of some of those messages, especially in bulk, the whole hey, messages, what's up? kind of thing. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and then how Tinder, which I knew nothing about, like, I thought it was a hookup app, right, but Tinder sort of has turned everything upside down and made it more like the way that you would meet people in the real world, because it would show you, you know, people nearby, and then they'd make it like a game cuz it's the whole you know you swipe right swipe left depending on not whether you're interested mm. but the game changer was that you could only talk to people who were interested in you as well so and i thought it was really interesting that i think at the end of that chapter Or maybe it was a bit later in the book. And Zari talked about how he changed his own strategy because I think when he was younger, he was aiming for quantity, trying to meet as many (laughs) new women as possible and going on stacks of first dates. And then, um, and I'm not sure, but it seemed to hint like as a result of the research or maybe just because he was tired of dating because he said, you know, and a lot of people said dating is so exhausting. Um, he decided he would go for quality instead and he tried hard to get to know a smaller group of people over a longer period of time and aimed to get to, say, date six as opposed to date just one or two. Third thing, the idea that the best is out there, there was this great quote which I didn't get to note down because it's an audiobook book and you have to actually, yeah. Anyway, so he talked about how the internet not only can deliver you the best on things like, you know, ordering an electric juicer or trying to find the best tacos <laughs> or whatever but it also gives you the idea that there is such a thing as the best, mm. which is really mm. dangerous when it comes to romantic relationships because you think, oh, if I just work a bit harder, if I search for a bit longer, then mm. I'll find this person. And it's And then you just don't settle down and you just, you just feel unsatisfied with the people that you're meeting Mm. and going, is there someone out there who's better? Fourth thing, culture and how hard dating can be in places where certain things are normal. So they interviewed a bunch of people, I think in, I think it was Buenos Aires. I uh, can't remember which city. It was a South American city. He, he's found that it was normal for people to have several relationships going at once instead of being monogamous. And I thought, how does that work? And, you know, everybody's <laughs> going and everybody does it. Or in Japan, where they also did some focus groups. And I felt so sorry for these poor Japanese women. that had to deal with these very, very shy Japanese men who had this, you know, chronic <laughs> fear of failure and so did not want to approach or talk to young women at all but then the women could not approach the men because if they did then they were being they would be seen as being too forward and too slutty. <laughs> and so it's just like this mm. terrible impasse. Yeah. And the government has been organising because you know they're they're um, horrified at how the birth rate is dropping. And so they're trying to organise like mixes and social events for young people and, and I just thought, wow, mm. you know, they're like they pay for you know, everybody gets a complimentary drink if you attend one of these things and it's that like government interference in your personalized. and then the final thing that struck me was that whole appeal of being single and just dating forever um and having meeting new people and having fun um as opposed to you know doing the hard work of making a relationship work um especially after the long initial sparks have faded and and I could tell like um with Ansari, he was certainly very tempted because he says there's so many very interesting people out there. How do I know I've met the one? But then you have to kind of mm. combat that idea of that there is the one. Yeah, so I found it really, really fascinating and it <laughs> made me glad in a way that I'm not dating, obviously. Been married for seventeen years, but also just had like some compassion for people who are out who are out there doing it and just how hard and exhausting it can be. Yeah, mm.
0: yeah, yeah. I need to read it again because I definitely both watching Master of None and um, reading that was quite surprised that someone who I thought was quite lightweight like because I only really knew him from Parks and Recreation mm. and obviously Tom Haverford on Parks and Rec is a character it's not who he is but um, it seemed like a lot of his personality he brought out in that but then to read these sort of reflections and go Ah, huh, okay. So he might behave in similar ways to that character, but he actually has a much deeper thought life going on mm. in regards to why he does what he does and all that sort of thing. So yeah. So did you
2: I listen to, to? go
0: back and read again. Yeah, audio
2: book or print.
0: Book? No, I I actually read it. Yeah.
2: Oh wow! Because in the audio book, he, yeah. he, he accuses the listener of being lazy and going, "You want me to read an entire book to you?" So it's really funny how he has these kind of little <laughs> asides about the whole thing, and then he does all these accents yeah. with the focus groups and the quotes and things, and you know, he, yeah, yeah, puts them in southern. Draw. I love
0: it. I love it when comedians read their own books or actors read their own books, like the <laughs> Anna Kendrick one that you, you spoke about a couple of episodes ago. Yeah. No, you wrote about. Sorry. Yeah. That I just finished reading. And at the end, she just starts getting hysterical. She's like, why do you think you're better than me? And she's like just shouting. And it's like, oh, this is so fun. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. I do go.
1: Claire Cooney, who I mentioned earlier as a musician, mm. she's also, she's all her day job is an audiobook narrator. So it's so oh, fun wow. sort of watching over her shoulder on Facebook at the latest thing she's reading or the strange Cat. things that happen in this book or what she's getting out of a book that she thought was going to be quite lightweight or how to pronounce it, but then yeah. she got to do the audiobook of her own book recently so I'm looking forward to it. I think it might be out now Bone Swans of Annandale It's very lovely. Mm. Oh, that's a cool title (laughs) Fairy Tales
0: (laughs) I always like audiobooks, like particularly if it's a non-fiction one, that are read by the person who wrote them unless they're a terrible reader in which case yeah they're probably wise to get someone else to read them but so it disappoints me for example that some of Brene brown's books aren't read by her because i'm yeah. like oh but she's so great to listen to i'm keen to get neil gaiman's norse mythology mm. because he's so good at reading mm. and i thought yeah that'll be a good one to listen to as i drive around the place yeah. someone like anzari would be really entertaining to listen to because he's so animated like his style
1: i'm interested to read that one as well modern love that's that's what it's called, isn't it? Modern love. Uh, modern romance. Modern romance, because um, it is. It's not like Tinder is something that I'm used to being around people who have a couple drinks after work and like, all right, let's <laughs> sign you up for Tinder. <laughs> 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 oh, Everyone, yeah. get out their apps. We're going to go through and be judgmental as a group. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
2: <laughs> that's that whole game mentality, isn't it? People just like doing it
0: is. That. Yeah. Yeah. yeah interesting. <laughs> I, th- I haven't ever signed up for it and the sort of earlier mm-hmm. dating sites like um, RSVP and things like that because I just thought uh, yeah I know there's uh, at least one listener who has and she said at the time she found it quite frustrating because it would make her very judgmental mm. and she didn't like judging someone on their spelling or grammar when they might actually be a really nice person but you've kind of automatically dismissed them right. as being not worth it because they can't spell or, yep, you
2: know. <laughs> The woman who spelt who, H-double-zero? Yes. He tells that story and, and so the guy kept trying to get her to write who, going, surely she knows yeah. how to spell this this three-letter word, but she couldn't and then that just like, ruined everything.
0: <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess there are some things that are deal-breakers, aren't they? <laughs> and for word people, maybe spelling is one of those things. Mm. It is funny what people get
1: judgmental about sitting there I went and saw Bridget Jones' Baby with a friend from uni, and then after she got out, she had a glass of wine and got out her profile, and yes, <laughs> was being very judgmental. But it's it's kind of fun. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and I, I know it is, isn't it? I, I have done. About it.
1: I have done online dating. Yeah, I've always found it. It's briefly amusing, and then the worst thing for me is that it absolutely brings out that worst part of the inability to self-edit, like. It's completely yeah. impossible to be objective about your own profile. You're like, what have I written? Yes. Do I sound like a psychotic killer?
0: <laughs> <laughs> Probably. Better Are not put know? the photo up of me with 20 cats. Yes.
1: Yeah. Maybe he's looking for someone with
0: 20 cats. <laughs>
1: Which case? Here's my number. <laughs> it just takes up so much mental space and bandwidth, but um. Yes, yes exactly.
0: Like
2: yeah. yeah, and Zari says that like you could d- make it a full time job just looking after your dating yeah, profile, yeah. responding to messages. Yeah.
1: I do know multiple people who've been quite deliberate about it, both mm. religious and non-religious backgrounds, um, who have gotten mm. married. Through Tinder, mm. through other dating profiles, sort of things. Mm. So.
0: Yeah, I, I've know I know a few people who have successfully negotiated it all and and have very solid marriages now. So, I mean, obviously, it does work because it's a thing yep. that isn't going away. So, um, and
1: the stigma is disappearing as well.
0: Yes, yeah. definitely.
1: Sometimes it's not the married-the-girl-next-door stories with our families either. My dad went to America and went into a bar and said, what's a (laughs) good-looking dealer like you doing all alone? (laughs)
0: That's (laughs) how he met my mother. (laughs) The only person who's ever successfully used that (laughs) line, your dad. (laughs) That's great. But I I do think, I I can't remember if he actually, um, Anzari, makes this conclusion, but I did feel it when I was reading it. Something about, oh, wouldn't it be nice if you were only limited to a small geographical area mm. of people? And they can't get away. And they're limited. They, they have to be limited too.
1: <laughs> Just saying the limitation has to go both ways.
0: Yeah, it has its downsides too because then you can't get away from them if it goes bad because they're you know they're there or it means that you know if you date someone in the church someone ends up leaving and it's all mm. that sort of thing you know that can be difficult. But
2: yeah, he seems to explore the issue from both sides, saying about how limitless choice is debilitating, but then also if the pool yeah. is too small, like in the small towns, yeah. then it can be a bit constricting and
0: and there's nobody. Yeah, yeah.
2: So you kind of need this happy yeah, medium yeah. of both, but then yeah. yeah, at the very end he's very much advocating about um spending time with people to get to know them and as soon Mm. as possible get get see them in real life because as one of the experts Mm. says you know um the human brain is the best algorithm like you'll know immediately (laughs) just from seeing them whether or not you're going to get on and stuff and yeah and obviously you know don't leave everything to first impressions but at the same time yeah if the spark isn't there it's not there and that's okay yeah yeah
0: yeah cool thanks karen So now we're going to head over into the wilderness of what we're working on at the moment.
1: I have been working on a lot of different things, as you saw. The main one last month, really, into the beginning of this, was finishing off the first draft of my novella for my Masters. Mm. So it's the Australian Gothic novella I've been working on. I got that done by and submitted on the, well, probably like 2 a.m. on the first of February and <laughs> well I've well got done. well done thank you and I've got critique back from that on that from both Angela Slater and my supervisor so about to have to start getting into putting all those edits in mm. which will be great they're very useful I've read read through them squinting because you know you don't want to look too hard at the <laughs> handwritten comments the first time yeah. you're like oh well I suppose that's fair enough what's the first draft we knew it was a first draft I knew she was going to yell at me about that She knew she was going to yell at me about that. So in the interim, however, since submitting that and waiting to hear back and put all my mid-candidature documents in, I was working on some art for an art show in the States, uh, a show put together by Light Grey Art Lab, which is the gallery that organised the trip to Iceland I went on last year. And this was a show themed To Be You wanting people to sort of look at the stories that are important to them or things that have always been core to their art or their personality. Mm. So I was able to tie that into the uh, master's project as well and do some art for the novella. For that, cut paper piece, pulling in fairy tale and Australian imagery. And then Mm. rediscovered sun print, cyanotype paper. So I've been running outside and making (laughs) prints and coming running back in with them. But also as part of the mid-candidature, I had to give presentations that weren't just to my university colleagues so I ended up and it's a bit difficult when you're doing a creative piece and have to give you a presentation between October and February because there weren't that many things you could get into at mm. relatively short notice because we also had to like get our festivals and written yes <laughs> So there were two other people in the same boat and I organised through the Queensland Writers' Society a pop-up salon, which was just really lovely. Wine and cheese and three of us giving short readings from our works in progress. We are all doing practice-led research, creative writing. Um, But I was the only fiction writer, which was such a nice change because usually you end up with the three people writing fairy tale novels or so forth together. (laughs) And I was doing Australian Gothic novella. Jill Brown is doing a biography of three different 20th century ballerinas. And Paul Brandon had walked the Overland Overland Track in Tasmania and was writing essentially essays about bushwalking and nature. Hmm. Though he is a fantasy author as and a musician as well in his other lives. So having those really different topics and approaches and playing off each other and... Uh, having sort of question and answer and discussion and getting to moderate that because I really like moderating panels (laughs) was fun and then I had to do uh I had to I chose to (laughs) do a presentation about adapting fairy tales and translating them from a European to an Australian context specifically Sleeping Beauty but all sorts of fairy tales but I was trying to bring together the illustration and the writing principles as well and play those off each other Mm
0: -hmm. so I ended up
1: giving that, was probably about 20-25 minute presentation plus showing the accompanying art and so what I'm wanting to do now is break that up into a couple shorter articles for various places I have a number of art projects coming up or to do I've nearly finished the March calendar it should be up tonight or tomorrow Mm and I just made a list today and it's all gone out of my head of what I've got coming up lots of Lots of art projects, book cover, illustrations. It's sometimes difficult to say what the big thing I'm working on is because Mm. there's so many deadlines with that. I can – well, I can show you because (laughs) I can tell everybody else I can show you. (laughs) I've been doing some illustrations um, for Garth Nix for characters from his – (gasps) Yeah,
0: they're gorgeous. Oh, is that
1: that no, it's for no. a frog kisser, his new novel, oh, which comes kisser, out in March. So yes. it's not for the novel itself, but it's their characters from the novel t- for him to use in promotion. So so, awesome. been-
0: so we're seeing these gorgeous illustrations. If you want to see these gorgeous illustrations too, you should support Kathleen on Patreon. Mm. Yes. Because she Garth- gives people sneak peeks. <laughs>
1: and when Gath gives me the go-ahead, I will tell you all about the others. You- Yay. bit.
0: Cool. We'll have we'll have links to Kathleen's Patreon and things on our show notes at HiveMinded.net.
1: So a lot of what I've been working on really is just how to balance everything that I'm working on.
0: Mm. And I've
1: talked to you previously about getting everything done. And in the last month or two, I've had to start going. Okay, what is a reasonable number of hours for me to spend working? and call it a working day and started with four hours and it's gone up to a lot more than that of actually typing, of actually doing art and checking that off. The first time I tried it, it took me until about one in the morning to finish four hours. By now I can get six, seven hours
0: done if I don't have errands to run. It's very hard as a, a creative worker it's Mm. I suppose hard to compartmentalize those things or to even estimate how long something's going to take when you have to factor that sort of stuff in what's your what do you find your stamina is like can you do reasonable stretches in one sitting or you have to do a little bit and then go do something else and then
1: I can do reasonable stretches of art writing Mm. six six hours of writing or editing is incredible incredible mental strain actually. I can build up to it, I can do it. I'm aware that I'm getting better at it. But art, there is a lot of thinking and reading early on, but then after that, not to suggest it's mechanical at all, but it's it's the flow, it's the hands. I like to think I've trained my hand enough that I'm getting closer to seeing on the page what I see in my mind. So while I'm doing that, I'll often have a TV show or a podcast going on in the yep. background, just something that I don't have to have my eyes on. I've been working through Ripper Street, which was a bit too exciting, so I'm back on forensic
0: files. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I know, isn't it? Isn't it terrible when you pick the wrong thing and then you yeah, sit yeah. down to work and you're just like, but I can't do both at the same time. Ah. Mm.
1: But it's been really great getting to six or so hours, knowing that after that long sitting, like actually sitting and drawing or working, my back will mm. start to give way. I'll mm. have done an hour or two of admin. I might have had you know a meeting doing this or something. Um, and Mm -hmm. just to be able to stop after that and I'm really unfamiliar with the concept of evenings because uni who has it you know who has evenings off at uni you're always working the night before and the rest of the time it's party in the hallway (laughs) (laughs) and then I was working full-time and doing art and writing in the evenings so I'd never had evenings off and now now I've got evenings off, but I have had to work yeah. out what to do with them, which was watch TV yep. shows with subtitles, so I couldn't do anything else. And now I'm going to be tutoring <laughs> two subjects for uni, so my evenings oh. are full again of brushing up on grammar. Kathleen, uh. thanks. Kathleen.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, see that that makes up for me because I haven't got a heap to talk about, so that's okay. Like, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm very excited to say that I submitted something to the Westbury Fairy. Yay. Bizarre. as i mentioned the last episode and it was a piece of flash fiction so it wasn't a full short story but i felt excited that i had actually finished something worked on it sent it off so regardless of what happens with it that feels like a very exciting thing mm, to have done
2: that's great
0: um tonight this is a really small thing and especially for someone like karen who cannot be without a yarn project <laughs> or she starts to go batty yes,
1: um,
0: I tonight I started crocheting again since moving here so we've been here in Tassie for six months and it was a pretty significant upheaval obviously moving into state is a pretty big thing um, and I just assumed that I'd be able to pick up everything where I left off but I've found that my making mojo has been seriously lacking so mm-hmm. whereas I used to sew or crochet or do something with Um, creative with my hands Um, almost every day I have not for about six months so last week I made a handbag I sewed a handbag which was super exciting and tonight I started knitting uh, crocheting myself a beanie so um, it's very exciting that the those sort of handmade things are starting to flow again Um, and yeah that's what I'm doing yeah so Karen how about you
2: uh, I wrote an article for GoThereFor.com, I don't know when it's going up, it was about Growth Group stuff, because the project I worked on last year, the Growth Group Notebook, has just come out, which is very, very exciting. And
0: Yeah, I it got, looks great.
2: Yeah, I got my own copy, it's hardcover, it's really nicely done. I don't know who did the design work on the um, interiors. Joy. And the covers. Oh, was it Joy? I think so, I Well know. she
0: posted something about working on it, so.
2: Oh, okay, that's great. Oh, I love Joy's work. Yeah, really nice. And to celebrate, I decided to buy a whole bunch and give them to my growth group, um, which... You know, it's kind of like your Bible study group. If you're not a Christian, it's, you know, a bunch of mm. people getting together to read and study the Bible and pray together. And so they were very excited about it. And um, yeah, so we're going to use it this year. And it, it, the format of it suits our group because often we use what's called the Swedish method to read the Bible, where, you know, you mm. read through the passage together, you think about any questions that you might have and try to answer them. Or you think about how to apply the passage to your lives. Um, I can't remember the third. Thing is, but you know, it's the light bulb, the arrow, and something else. And um, in the book, <laughs> there's room for you to write ideas, down.
1: application, and questions. Wasn't it just the three? Something like that. Um, but then mm-hmm. some people add
2: other ones, like who can I tell um, about the things that I've been learning today? Yeah, so the space in the book to write down what you've been learning is off, and there's also space for prayer points and things. And yeah, so the, the format works quite well with the way that we do Bible study and. Um, I think people are looking forward to using it, which is really, really cool. Um, so there's that. Um, I'm not sure when they go there for articles going online because that depends a little bit on Matthias Media. But I also went over there, I think it was last week, and did a Facebook live chat with Tara, who's one of our wonderful podcast listeners and also looks after some of the marketing mm-hmm. for Matthias Media. And it was interesting because I've never done a Facebook live chat before. Uh, I've done interviews on podcasts and obviously this but not a live thing Mm. and um I just did not think about that like I I remember you know Shonda Rhimes in Year of Yes freaking out about doing live stuff but I just went I'm just going to ignore the fact that it's live and ignore the number (laughs) of people who are actually watching this thing which um actually was a lot higher than I thought would be watching and um do it worse than
1: expected (laughs)
2: Yeah, we were. T- I was told that it went well, so that's good. And I, I usually prepare for that sort of thing by writing copious notes. And so the night before, I was like, because Tara had sent me questions, and so I was writing my answers. So at least you know I thought about the questions mm. and worked through them. So that, the prose writing has kind of fallen a little bit by the wayside, which is disappointing, but reading Modern Romance was really, really helpful, unexpectedly, Mm because I didn't read Modern Romance to help me with the short story, but it's actually going to help me quite a lot with the short story, which is very, very cool. I registered for GenreCon, and Kathy said I could stay with her. Yay! And I also sent them a workshop, Expression of Interest. Um, So the workshop, which I'm hoping they'll let me run, is a beginner's guide to self-publishing. I'm sure there's like high demand there. So we'll see. We'll see how that goes.
0: Yeah. Cool. It's going
1: to be great. How exciting. <laughs> genre Con will be great. You'll come up. I'll just...
2: <laughs> yes, can I do a little spiel about Genre Con? Yes, do. do. Okay, so Genre Con is a conference for writers of um, different genres. So It's like crime and romance and fantasy and speculative fiction and science fiction and so on and so forth. And it's really cool because you just get together and for a couple of days you just talk about craft and you get to meet all these amazing people who are usually writers like you or fans of the genre and you get also get to hear from the amazing special guests that they had. Um, so the last mm. one, they only hold it every two years. And the last one that I went to with Kathleen, they had, uh, I can't remember exactly who it was, but I remember the guest of honour was, I'm going to forget her name, Kathleen help.
1: Mary Robinette Kowal.
2: Yeah, that's right. Mary Robinette Kowal, who was amazing. And she did a, a wonderful little um, shadow puppet show for us at the banquets. Mm and also sang Rubber Ducky as a Torch song for us. <laughs>
1: ah, cool.
2: <laughs> yes, yeah, so I highly recommend it.
1: Do you want to know who this year's guests are? I've just called it up. So Nalini Singh, who's most probably most known for her romance. Just checking that. Delilah Dawson, um, who you may know from Twitter. <laughs> she writes <laughs> uh, and she's won a number of book awards and uh, lots of thrillers and dark fantasy. Um, they're the international guests, so Nalini Singh and Delilah Dawson. And then Angela Slater, Emma Viskick and Amy Andrews are the local guests. So Angela Slater, I do a lot of work with, Brisbane-based, mm. British and World Fantasy Award winning author. And then Emma Viskic is Australian crime writer, and Amy Andrews is a contemporary romance author so it's it's a really interesting mixture of you're not a, you're not divided out into the romance panel and the mm. crime panel and so forth. They're always mixed together. Um, yeah, I had that panel on writing blistering banter. I was moderating, but I had um, Anna Campbell, I had c s Picat, I had. I'm gonna forget someone if I try and list the whole whole lot of us, but I had someone from every genre talking about how yeah. they handle banter and mm. dialogue as action in their different books. So it's it's great. Just That's to cool. Talk to other practitioners.
0: So genrecon, check it out. I should go. You
1: go. Tickets are now available. <laughs>
0: tickets are now available and and if we had sponsors no they couldn't sponsor us because they're probably (laughs) looking for sponsorship um so
1: if you would like to sponsor either genre con or us
0: (laughs) (laughs) send us money or donuts no money thanks for joining us for episode nine we will be back in a couple of weeks Check out our show notes at hiveminder.net. We put a lot of work into that, um, just get it, giving you links and things, and Karen puts them up every fortnight, which is great. Thank you, Karen. And it's been a lovely, however long it's been, talking with you ladies. So good night. Good night. Good night. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and thanks for listening. Goodbye, everyone.